Hello all, welcome back to another episode of The Casual Criminalist. This is the first one for me, back from Christmas break. And I would say I'm feeling rested, but my wife and I, we thought, you know, it'll be a brilliant thing to do over Christmas break. What we'll do is we'll try and potty train our two-year-old. Uh, we were going to do it a few months earlier, but we had another kid and they're like, when you have another, this is not relevant to the shirt at all. I'm sorry, I just, this is, uh, after the break, I'm like, oh, there's things I want to say. There's updates I've got. <laughs> Whereas really I should just get on with the content. But uh, yeah, my uh, we, we delayed it for a little while because we had another kid. And so, uh, you know, you don't want to change too many things because otherwise they'll be like uh, all confused and stuff. But I was, I was going to say I had a brilliantly restful break, but I didn't because I was just potty training a child who uh, is uh, difficult at the best of times. Nah, she's great. She's just uh, hard-headed. Like she's stubborn. She doesn't want to, you know, she'd, she'd rather take a, a shit on the carpet, which is... Which is great. It's great. Ah, uh, this is the Casual Criminalist. I hope you had a fantastic holidays. All of that good stuff. Uh, welcome back today, Israel Keys, the Phantom Psychopath. Um, or psychopath. 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 It sounds like I'm from the north, which is a bit weird. Also, addressing the pronunciation of this dude's name. Like I, we say his name is like the country, like Israel, and I know Americans say Israel. So, I don't know if it's Israel Keys or Israel Keys. Um, I'm definitely probably just going to go with Israel. Israel. Israel, like the British way, because if I try and say it, the... Let's see if this... Israel... Does he have an entry in the dictionary? No, he doesn't. I'm going to call him Israel Keys, because I'm sure it's Israel Keys, because of course it would be. But um, I'm definitely going to screw that up. So it doesn't matter. Bear with me. Everything's going to be fine. Don't worry. Relax. Let's go. Oh, thank you, David, for writing the script. If you're new here, David writes, I read. Jen adds some stuff. She does the video edit and the audio edit. Brilliantly, might I say. Fake it till you make it. Let's go. It's the evening of the 1st of February, 2012. The city of Anchorage, Alaska, rests next to the frigid waters of the Cook Inlet on a strip of coastal lowlands flanked by the mighty Chugach Mountains, which loom large over the city. Being a port town that caters to the local oil industry and military bases, Anchorage contains roughly 300,000 people and 40% of Alaska's population. Wow, I mean, I knew Alaska was like, not small, Alaska's large, but like barely populated. But that is really tiny. Also, Anchorage. I mean, no offense to anyone from Anchorage, but this sounds like a really boring place. <laughs> Maybe beautiful, like there's these nice large mountains, but what's the town about? It's just, there's a port. There's some oil. <laughs> there's 300,000 people. I mean, it's a large town, but it, it, I don't know. It doesn't sound that much fun. It also has roughly 300 black bears and grizzly bears in nearby residence, along with thousands of moose, which are frequently seen wandering around the city and local highways. <laughs> sounds dangerous as well. Ah! In February, the temperatures typically never rise above freezing even during the day. Oh my god. And at night, the temperature hovers between minus 10 and minus 30 degrees Celsius. Between 14 and minus 22 degrees Fahrenheit. Even by the standards of lifelong inhabitants of northern climes, it's a pretty brisk winter, to say the least. Yeah, I mean, I come from the UK. And if it's minus temperatures there, you're like, oh, it's bloody cold outside. Minus 2. Now I live in Prague in the Czech Republic. It's like, minus 10. Yeah, it's all right. It's not too bad. It's not minus 20, is it? It's not minus 20. Um, but no, that is that is really chilly. I don't I wouldn't like it if it never rose above freezing. Even in winter here. You know, if the, I don't think there's a 
There will be weeks where it doesn't go above freezing, but it's unusual. Scattered about Anchorage are small coffee kiosks, and people can just drive up to them and purchase a warm beverage from a drive through window in order to avoid leaving the warmth of their vehicles. Working at one such kiosk named Common Grounds is 18-year-old Samantha Koenig. She is a cheerful 5'4 tomboy who fancies guns, riding ATVs, fishing, and camping. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to stereotype people from Alaska, but... uh, 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 uh. <laughs> Samantha is also a recovering drug addict, having fallen into excessive and debilitating cocaine use the year before. It's almost 8 p.m. Common Ground stays open later than most coffee kiosks in the city. Samantha is just clearing up in order to close the kiosk for the night. Thereafter, she was due to be picked up at around 8.30 by her boyfriend, Dwayne. Uh, <laughs> David's provided me with a pronunciation guide for Dwayne. Which, uh, I mean, I mean, I guess, thanks, but also slightly insulted. <laughs> And a man approaches the kiosk on foot and knocks on the window. Samantha opens it. The man is wearing a black balaclava ski mask, which in other contexts might be menacing. But Alaska is bloody cold, so the sight is not even remotely unusual for Samantha. <laughs> it's like, yeah, balaclavas. I mean, when it's really... Masks, right? Wearing masks, COVID masks. In winter, when it's really cold outside, I'm like, okay, I'm just going just gonna to keep this on when I leave a shop or a building or whatever, because I'm like... It's quite nice and warm on my face, like a balaclava. But the problem, like balaclavas, if they were just acceptable to be allowed just walking around, <laughs> I feel like they're nice. They keep your face warm as well as your head and neck. It's like a hat, a scarf, and a face warmer all in one. The problem with wearing a balaclava is like, <laughs> you just, it's just asking for trouble. If you just, you'll be walking past banks and you'll get arrested. <laughs> the man hands her his travel thermos and orders a cafe Americano which is an espresso diluted with water and sometimes a bit of standard coffee. Wait, what? An Americano is just an espresso with hot water. Why are you adding regular coffee to it? That's weird. That's got to be an Alaska thing. Who's doing that? Samantha smiles and turns around to fill the man's thermos. Turning back around to collect the man's payment, she stops and instinctively jerks back and raises her hands in the air. The man in the black ski mask is pointing a pistol at her. Uh, maybe he's just got it for protection from all the bears. And he just took it out because he thought it was his wallet he's wearing a balak i mean <laughs> we, there's excuses for the balaclava not for the gun it's a terrible joke this is a robbery the man says calmly turn off the lights for the kiosk and kill the light for the open sign her arm still raised samantha immediately does so her hand hovers over the small panic button that is located just next to the light switch she does not press it if she had done a distress call would have automatically gone out to police dispatchers who would have sent along a patrol car yeah i mean we've discussed this on the show before I used to was it this show we talked about this i used to work in a supermarket and there was a panic button on the till and the guy who was doing me and my you know my orientation on the first day in the supermarket was don't press the panic button if someone's rubbing you just give them all the money and then once they've left you can press the panic button don't press it while they're there we don't want you to get hurt and if they see you pressing it they might stab you or something so just give them the money it doesn't matter there's not that much money in the till and in their minds corporate are thinking and the lawsuit would be far more expensive than the money in the till wouldn't it now although could there be a lawsuit there you're just doing your job who are you going to see the supermarket it's like it's not their fault the guy with a knife came in and stabbed you what are you going to do sue him he's robbing a supermarket he probably doesn't have a ton of money you'd hit the jackpot if you find out that that guy's actually a billionaire and he just robs for the kick of it like in movies which i just don't think is a thing in real life although i guess people should like people shoplift if they have money because they get it what's it called uh there's a there's a disease kleptomania is it kleptomania or is that something else oh, i feel like that's right people have that disease where it's just like they like stealing <laughs> it's exciting 
All told, Samantha reasoned that this was just a robbery and she all she needed to do was comply so the man would go away as soon as possible. She'd then call the police, answer a few questions, and the kiosk's owner would make an insurance claim on the petty cash that was stolen. Exactly. Good thinking, Samantha. Although, I get the feeling this is like one of those 9-11 situations where it's like, yeah, 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 no, we're just hijacking the plane to uh, get some ransom. And, well, you know how that one ends. Darkness descended on the small kiosk, the main source of light now being the glow of street lamps shining through the window where the man was standing. Empty the cash register and hand me the money, the man instructs her. Samantha does so, reaching through the window to hand the man the cash. Throughout this entire process, the girl does not utter a word. Turn around and face away from the window, the man says. Samantha does as she's told. The man reaches through the window and binds Samantha's hand behind her back with zip ties. Step forward, the man tells Samantha. She steps forward a few paces away from the window, and in one swift movement, the man jumps through the window, over the counter, and into the kiosk. Where's your car? The man asks her. I don't have one, Samantha replies. Who's picking you up from work? The man inquires. For some reason, Samantha lies and tells the man that her father is picking her up rather than her boyfriend. Did you press an alarm? The man asks, which Samantha denies. The man presses her. I've got an earpiece connected to the police scanner in my truck, so I'll hear if the police call goes out. You better not be lying. Samantha assures the man that she's not lying. Why are police scanners a thing? I feel like the police should be in talking on should be talking on some special encrypted police radio. But then again, I know you can listen to them online because I found out about it once and I was like, that's cool. But I mean, we shouldn't. I feel like it's not good. The police should be allowed to talk secretly about policing stuff for reasons that are exactly this. Do they encrypt it now? They must. Why not? Come on. The man takes a pile of napkins from the counter and forces them into Samantha's mouth, gagging her. He grabs her, sticks the end of the gun into her ribs, and pushes her towards the door. Move. He commands her. I feel that Samantha survives. I know this is serial killer, but often David leads with, or sometimes he leads, with the person who survives. It's like that cold open. Because, and we know, I feel like this is Samantha telling the story rather than Israel. Keys, the serial killer. Because it feels like personal and not all psycho-y. I don't know. <laughs> it's, just, it's just got that non-psycho vibe. The Roads of Anchorage. Outside, the man marches Samantha across a large parking lot towards a white pickup truck he parked at the far end to avoid the vehicle showing up on any security cameras. As they make their way across the parking lot, the man sees a digital camera just sitting there in the snow. He picks it up, planning on selling it later. This is, look, if you're committing crimes, don't, while you're committing crimes, commit smaller accidental crimes or pick up stuff from the ground to sell later. Focus on the task at hand. You're committing a major crime. This would be like, you know, driving a race car and being like, oh, yeah, no, I'll just, I'll just, I'll just pull over for some, like, a cigarette or something. It's like, no, focus on driving the race car. You're doing something that should require all of your attention, kidnapping a person. What's wrong with criminals? What are you doing? <laughs> Don't take that. Taking advantage of the man's momentary lack of attention, Samantha takes off running. The man, six foot two, muscular, immediately tackles her and sticks the gun back in her ribs with only the slightest note of frustration in his voice. He informs Samantha that, try that again and you're dead. The parking lot is well lit and not completely abandoned. There are other parked cars and a few people rushing out of the cold. After all, it's only 8pm at night. Lean on me and pretend that you're drunk, the man instructs Samantha. She leans on him. Finally, they reach the truck and the man opens the passenger door and pushes Samantha inside. Still bound, she sits on her hands as the man pulls the seatbelt around her. The man walks around the truck and enters the driver's seat and slams the door. Very considerate putting that seatbelt on. <laughs> okay. 
The man takes the napkins out of Samantha's mouth. I'm going to hold you for ransom, the man explains. Samantha replies that her family is poor and he probably won't get much money out of them. The man shrugs and says that was fine. Her family were likely to raise the money. The man starts the truck's engine and they drive off into the night. At this point, I'd be more suspicious, but then there's nothing you can do. Like, I mean, maybe consider fighting back now. But it's like, with the robbery, absolutely, I'd give the money. And then I'd be sitting in the car and being like, you're not kidnapping me. You already lied about the robbery thing. And my family's like broke ass. So you didn't pick me for this. There's plenty of other people you could have kidnapped for money. The masked man proceeds to drive around Anchorage for the next four hours, going nowhere in particular, with Samantha sat quietly next to him. He stops once by the roadside so Samantha can squat and relieve herself. He stops again so he can smoke a cigar. <laughs> okay. While they drive around the city, they pull up to a set of traffic lights. The light goes red and the man halts the vehicle. Pulling up next to them was a police car with two cops inside. They're staring straight ahead, waiting for the light to change. Oh my god, now is your time. Now is your time. Samantha sits there and does not try to get their attention. She has calculated that cooperation was the best way to get out of a ransom situation alive. Yeah, but it's not a ransom situation, Sammy. The lights turn. I know. Oh, Simon, you're such a genius with your 2020 hindsight. But I know. But but ah, but it's a it's more than a kidnapping. The lights turn green and the two vehicles lurch forward and then part ways. The cops were completely oblivious to the kidnapped victim a few feet from them. The man pulls over again, unbuckles Samantha, and takes her from the passenger seat and transfers her to the back seat of the truck, where he lies her down. Noticing she is cold, because Samantha is wearing nothing but a work uniform and obviously didn't take a jacket when she was marched to gunpoint out of the kiosk, the man throws a few blankets on top of her to keep her warm. The man drives off again and stops in the parking lot of a local Walmart. He sits there for a few minutes, thinking, observing the large number of people still milling around the place, even though it was getting late. My dude, did you just kidnap someone without any sort of plan and now you're just driving around trying to think of a plan and smoking a cigar? You're like, dude, think through just a little bit before you do these crimes. What are you up to? Suddenly the man asks Samantha, where's your cell phone? The girl tells him that it's back at the coffee kiosk. The man pulls away and drives all the way back to common grounds. Leaving Samantha lying quietly on the back seat of his truck, he walks back into the kiosk. When he initially had kidnapped Samantha, the man left the door unlocked. The man retrieves Samantha's phone. He also picks up a few zip ties that he had dropped on the floor earlier. And in order to stay and in order to delay suspicion for as long as possible, this time the man uses Samantha's keys to lock the door behind him as he exits the kiosk. <laughs> so you've been driving around for hours, and the one thing that you've come up with is go back to the crime scene and make it less suspicious. You're breaking so many of our rules, my guy. Like there are so many rules that you have to obey like clean up your crime scene destroy the evidence maybe don't leave the cell phone behind maybe let her take her coat so it looks like she's actually locked up and gone somewhere else rather than been kidnapped and now you're returning to your crime scene what are you up to impersonating samantha the man sends two text messages one to samantha's boyfriend and another to her father explaining that she had a bad day and was going to stay with her friends for the weekend this story was aided by the fact that samantha and Dwayne had had a heated argument the night before back on the road again the man blindfolds samantha around midnight they pull into a small residential house in a respectable anchorage neighborhood the man momentarily leaves the truck and enters the house to make sure his girlfriend and 10 year old daughter are asleep Blindfolded and bound, Samantha is forced out of the back seat of the truck and ushered into the small shed around the back of the house. Within the shed are two large space heaters, which the man duly flicks on, and a tarp forebodingly spread out across the floor. Uh-oh. When there is a tarp spread out, it's like, it, that's it's, it's not a good time. He pushes Samantha down onto a 
The only thing that's worse is you walk into a room and there's just plastic everywhere. And you're like, oh no. Oh no, you're like the Dexter guy. Ah, he's gonna put a knife in my chest. He pushes Samantha down onto a small overturned bucket, which she uses for a seat. The man removes her blindfold and takes off his black ski mask. Oh no, and now he's shown you his face. Ah, oh wait, she, no, she had a, bal- he had a balaclava on the whole time. Ay ay ay. The wee small hours in the morning. Samantha looked up at the man in his mid-thirties, slim, clean-shaven, short brown hair, brown eyes which were slightly too widely spaced, rubbery lips, and a somewhat weak chin. His face was impassive and unsmiling. Aside for his intimidating height, the man was unremarkable, an average Joe. The man turned on a nearby... Wasn't he just six foot two? Is that intimidatingly tall? The man turned on the nearby stereo full blast and began blaring heavy metal music. If you try to scream, he warned Samantha, no one will be able to hear you. The man took a rope, tied it around Samantha's neck, and then bolted the rope to the wall so that Samantha was effectively held in place. Where's your debit card? The man asked. I don't have one on me, Samantha explained, but I do share one with my boyfriend, Dwayne. It's in his truck. What's the address? The man asked wearily. Samantha told him. What's the pin number? He asked. Samantha recited it to him. The man donned the ski mask again, got up, and left Samantha tied up in the shed. He drove his girlfriend's car to the address Samantha provided. He parked at the end of the street and walked a short distance to a truck parked in the driveway of a nearby house. He used Samantha's keys to unlock the door of the truck and get inside. The man quickly finds Samantha's debit card. Just then, the porch lights of the house flicker on and the front door opens. Dwayne, Samantha's boyfriend, stands on the doorstep, staring at the masked man climbing out of his vehicle. Dwayne yells at him, Get the fuck out of here! For a few seconds, the two men stand there and glare at each other. Dwayne then goes back into the house to call for help. Terrible criminal. I mean, he's a terrible criminal because he's kidnapped someone, but he's also really bad at being a criminal. He just didn't think anything through at all. Isn't he serious? Is he a... Oh, he's a phantom psychopath. He doesn't seem to be very phantomy so far, does he? Not losing a millisecond, the man legs it down the street, quickly checks over his shoulders to make sure that he's not being observed, dives into his girlfriend's car, and drives off in the opposite direction. While driving to a nearby ATM machine, the man realizes he's forgotten the pin number. <laughs> well, you're, you're the worst criminal ever! He tests the pin number, but does not withdraw cash. He drives all the way back to his house and barges into the shed. What was the pin number again? Ah! Oh, man, come on. He demands of Samantha. She repeats it. The man dashes out of the shed, slamming the door, climbs back into his girlfriend's car, and drives to a nearby ATM. He tests the pin number, but doesn't withdraw any crash. By this point, it's approximately 3 a.m. The man then drives back to his house. He does not go back to the shed, but heads into the house to make sure that his girlfriend and daughter are still asleep. He pours himself a glass of red wine. He sits back in a lazy boy chair and then gently quaffs his drink while he stares thoughtfully at the ceiling. A heavy drinker, the man quickly works his way through half a bottle in a matter of minutes. Damn, son. <laughs> That's a lot of wine very quickly. There's <laughs> another rule. I swear on the list of rules, if you're new here, there's a gradually accumulating. There's like 70 of them now, like rules for criminals. Getting drunk while you're committing crimes is uh, is one of the rules. Like, don't do it. Because it's just not good. You're not going to be better at crime if you're drunk. Then he gets up, retrieves a glass of water, and takes it to the shed. He gives it to the Samantha. She drinks it. He then unbinds her from the wall, cuts her zip-tie restraints, and offers her a cigarette, which Samantha accepts. The two have an awkward conversation as the heavy metal continues to blare over the stereo. The man unloads on her a highly cynical and slightly disjointed view of the world, which the 18-year-old girl responds to hesitatingly with mounting confusion. Then the man lays Samantha down on the tarp and binds her arms and legs again. 
The man rapes the victim twice over the course of just 10 or 20 minutes. It's got dark very quickly. At this point, Samantha looks up at him and asks, Are you going to kill me? Yes, the man says matter-of-factly. With surprising calmness, Samantha tries to talk the man out of it, but he won't be dissuaded. He begins to strangle her, and the man is excited by looking into Samantha's eyes as she drifts in and out of consciousness. Nevertheless, morning is fast approaching, and the man realizes this is taking too long. He stabs her in the back in order to speed up the process. Eventually, Samantha Koenig dies. Ah, oh. oh, it felt like it wasn't the words of a psycho. Ah, oh, I saw. This is really disappointing. I really had it set up in my mind, and I was like, everything's going to be all right. She's going to escape because she, we're getting this story from her. The man leaves her bleeding on the top in the shed. The man then re-enters the house, takes a warm shower, and wakes up his 10-year-old daughter and tells her to get ready for their trip. Ah, oh, dude, I don't understand. A luxurious Caribbean cruise. The man headed back into the shed, rolled Samantha's body up in the top, and shoved it, her in a cabinet. The man flicked off the space eaters to avoid the body rotting and starting to smell. Instead, within the shed, it would be preserved by the sub-zero Alaskan cold. The man locked the door of the shed. He then called a taxi and went to the airport and flew to New Orleans, where he departed on a 12-day cruise around the Caribbean that he'd booked months ago. Dude, that is so weird. That is so weird. You just... Murdering someone there. It's like, oh, were you murdering someone yesterday? Off on a 12-day cruise today. Whee! On the morning of February the 2nd, 2012, one of Samantha's co-workers at Common Grounds entered the kiosk and noticed Samantha had not put things away properly from the night before. A number of espresso utensils were unwashed and there were cups and napkins strewn about the place. Then the co-worker noticed that the cash register had been completely emptied. She called the police. Initially, police suspected that Samantha had stolen the money and scarped away somewhere with her friends. Because of Samantha's past cocaine and marijuana abuse, for which she was in recovery, they assumed the young woman had just relapsed and was off somewhere on a benzer and after she had had a fight with her boyfriend. When the police finally reviewed the grainy security camera footage from the coffee kiosk on February the 3rd, all they saw was Samantha talking to someone at the drive-thru window before turning off the lights and the man jumping inside. Initially, the police assumed that this was Samantha's friend or drug dealer. Police overlooked Samantha putting up her hands. The man at the window was out of view, and once the lights at the kiosk were out, they did not see the gun. The drug theory was supported by interviews with several of Samantha's friends, who also thought it likely she was on a drug binge, and a number of hours were wasted chasing up this theory. Police followed leads regarding Samantha's connection with drug dealers, people who were allegedly robbing those drug dealers, and people who were conducting grow-ops within local residential houses. Okay, fair play, police. I mean, her putting her hands up is a little bit suspicious, though, isn't it? Shouldn't we have looked into that? Um, and also, she's if you even if it's like maybe she's been convicted by drug... Uh, convicted. Kidnapped by drug makers or sellers or whatever drug people do. Um, she, she's been kidnapped. Okay, this isn't bad policing. It's not brilliant. It's just not bad. In case anyone is baffled at this point or shouting, get your together, police. Oh, I don't know, David. We've looked at some really bad examples of policing and this doesn't feel like the worst. Okay, the cameras went out. The man jumped in. They're like, it's probably got something to do with drugs because she was on, she was into drugs like previously. Her friends reckon she's off on a binge. The police reckon that as well. Uh, I don't think it's the worst policing in the world. Am I being really generous? Because normally I'm all over that. Like, what are you up to, police? But this isn't bad, is it? Like in many episodes of The Casual Criminalist, allow me to provide some highly intriguing insight that comes direct from a professional criminalist colleague of mine. What? 
David, you've been holding out on me. You have a professional criminalist colleague? That's like the opposite of me. I thought about calling this the armchair uh, criminalist because, you know, like an armchair person or like a backseat driver criminalist or something like that. But nothing quite had that same ring as casual criminalist. But uh, wow. Oh my God, that person should definitely be hosting this podcast, not me. I'm just an idiot. In the overwhelming majority of police investigations, let us say, for the sake of argument, 90%, investigators are not playing a game of Sherlock Holmes piecing together mysterious clues against an elusive foe. In the majority of police work, the obvious offender is already in their sights from the outset, and the police just have to spend enough time collecting evidence to put forward a case against this person to the Crown or District Attorney. Once police alight on a theory, often by little more than intuition and experience, they pursue it relentlessly, rather than carefully weighing up each new clue and considering all possible explanations. They also call this getting railroaded. I mean, obviously, if you're guilty, <laughs> then you're railroaded to prison where you belong. But if you're innocent, it's like, if the police lock in on you, and they're like convinced it's you, you get that whole confirmation bias thing going on where you're like, you see a clue and it's like, it fits with our guy, doesn't it? Even if it doesn't, because it confirms your theory and human brains love having their theories confirmed. And then boom, the next thing you know, you're in the chair. Electric chair, that is. This is America, right? Yeah, Alaska, Alaska. I'm always like, yeah, Canada, but it's not Canada. It's that weird slice of Canada that belongs to America. How weird is that? Although as a British person, person talking about weird slices of the world belonging to another country, I realize I cannot really talk. It's only when investigators hit a dead end or some startling new information comes to light that they begin to consider other explanations and start pursuing other theories. But sometimes, tragically, the police will continue to pursue the wrong suspect right up to court or even conviction. And many of the remaining 10% of crimes that are Sherlock Holmes mysteries go unsolved. And that is why the Anchorage B-Cops ignored clear fucking evidence of an abduction for a more convenient explanation of a drug addict robbing her place of work to go on a bender. Hell, if we want to be charitable just by sheer odds, in similar contexts, maybe 9 out of 10 times, the local PD would have been absolutely right. Yeah, and that's the thing. Like, the reason they do this is because obviously it works most of the time. However, days turned into weeks, and police began to entertain other theories. Meanwhile, Samantha's father began to make public appeals and drum up public support for his missing daughter. He was also deeply angered that she was being written off as a junkie and a thief. A vigil was held, which hundreds of people attended. The story of Samantha's disappearance started to make it into the national news. Meanwhile, her kidnapper, rapist, and murderer was soaking in the sun thousands of miles away. After his cruise, the man went to Texas to spend some brief time with relatives there. What is this guy's life? What are you up to? Where are your family? Like, I've got... Doesn't he have a job? Like, the idea of... He's got a kid and a wife. I have a kid. I have kids and a wife and a job. And the idea that I could just, like, find the time to go around murdering, drive around for four hours, smoke a cigar, go to the Caribbean for 12 days, while listening to death metal in my garage in the garden and them not noticing. It's like, what is your life? How are you doing this? I couldn't lead a double life. I don't have enough time. It would be impossible. On February the 15th, 58-year-old Jimmy Tidwell, an electrician who lived in the tiny town of Mount Enterprise, Texas, 
great name for a town, disappeared without a trace in the early hours of the morning after leaving his night shift. Jimmy was short and mildly obese and not in the best shape to defend himself. His truck was later found five miles from his house. On February the 16th, the next day, in the small town of Alido, Texas, Samantha Koenig's killer robbed and burned down a house while the owners were not home. The man intended to use the fire as a distraction to rob a bank on the other end of town. Unfortunately, dude, you are on some... You're just taking part in all the big crimes. Why are you... Murder, rape, robbery. What, you'd like going for like some sort of bingo card of crime? Unfortunately, the man lost track of time watching the house burn from a nearby hill and watching the authorities arrive, so he abandoned his plans to rob the bank. And again, your crime planning is terrible. You, you get distracted very easily. <laughs> Instead, the man drove 30 miles to Azel, Texas, where he robbed a different bank, concealing his face with a standard construction worker's face mask, eye protectors, and a white hard hat that the FBI believes had belonged to Jimmy Tidwell. More disturbingly, the man was known to have short hair at the time, yet the surveillance footage he has seen Yet, the, yet in the surveillance footage, she is shown with long brown hair. The FBI speculated that rather than the wig, the man was wearing... Oh no, I just read ahead on that. He's wearing Jimmy Tidwell's scalp. Scalp? Scalp. Dude. Dude. No. That's like wearing his face as a mask. Shit. That's some, like, Ed Gein shit right there. The man managed to rob $10,000 from the bank. Incidentally, Tidwell's body has never been found, but the FBI strongly suspect that, like Samantha Koenig, Tidwell is another one of this man's victims. Yeah, no shit, FBI. When you find the man who's missing his scalp, you'll be like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, okay, we know. Dude, dude, that is not right. Now, just before we continue with today's episode, let me give a quick thank you to today's wonderful sponsors. First up, Wondery. Thank you, Wondery. Look, in the era of one of the most heinous serial killers of all time, it was a murderous crew who went curiously unnoticed. The McCrarys? They committed countless abductions, murders, robberies, and, well, just a bit of general mayhem wherever they went. New podcast from Wondery, Families Who Kill, The Donut Shop Murders, is a true crime miniseries that follows a family banded together to terrorize small-town America, embarking on a brutal crime spree that captivated a nation. Led by the criminal duo of Sherman and his son-in-law Carl, this Carl, this disturbed family targeted people working night shifts in donut shops. <laughs> why? Well, listen to that miniseries to find out why don't you. In The Donut Shop Murders, you'll hear the details of their story for the first time from one of the McCrary's and the detective who tracked them down across the country as they left death and destruction in their wake. That's extremely cool. Both sides of the story there in a podcast, in a miniseries that you can get for free. What? And look, if you love this show, if you love The Casual Criminalist, why not go check out this miniseries? It's going to be like what we do, except in way more depth. And they've got both sides of the story. That's very cool, Wondery. Follow Families Who Kill the Donut Shop Murders on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or you can binge all six episodes ad-free. That sounds nice by subscribing to Wondery Plus in the Apple Podcasts or Wondery app. Brilliant. Also, many thanks to a rather different sponsorship to that previous one, BitBot. Yes, look, what time of year is it? It's the New Year resolution time. What are you thinking about? Get back into shape? I don't know. Look, I ate too much over Christmas and I started this new year and I'm like, let's, uh, let's get back on the train of not snacking all the time on leftover Christmas dinner and all of that stuff. But look, balancing between work, family, and life in general, preach. As a man who works a lot and as a family, two young kids 
that rings rather true. And it can be hard to make fitness a priority, can it ever? You need a program that works with you, not against you. Fitbod's innovative algorithm learns your goals by tra- and training abilities and crafts a personalized training regime that's unique to you. Because this is true, you can like Google, how do I do this, how do I do that? But the problem is, everyone works in different ways. Everyone starts off at a different weight, has different preferences, all of that stuff, you know? It's good to have it tailored to you. And algorithms, of course, technology, makes that all possible with FitBot. Start the year off right with 25% off FitBot membership. I just say, look, FitBot isn't about comparing yourself to others. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't end well. It's like, why aren't I like The Rock? I eat well and I work out. It's like, why aren't I like him? Don't compare yourself to others, especially The Rock, you know? <laughs> It's not going to work out well. Their algorithm uses data to create and adjust a dynamic fitness plan just for you. You'll have access to your personalized routine on their easy-to-use mobile app, so you can start making progress on your goals anytime, anywhere. Look, goal setting, doing it with an app, making everything possible. New Year's resolutions, they're hard to stick to anyway right so why not make it easier on yourself set those goals get that program take advantage of the technology that is possible because of fitspot yes plus uh hd video tutorials to make learning a breeze it integrates with all that technology you have like apple watch etc plus good if you're on a bit of a budget because it's only 12.99 a month dollars that is or 79.99 dollars a year to sign up now you get 25 percent off your membership mandatory call to action what's that get 25 percent off a membership when you sign up now at fitbod.me that's f-i-t-b-o-d dot me slash casual 25 percent off your membership at fitbod.me slash casual and thank you to our wonderful sponsors and back to today's show a macabre photo shoot the kidnapper murderer rapist burglar arsonist bank robber return oh yay did arson as well dude what is next genocide he returned to Alaska on the weekend of February the 18th, 2012, and spent Saturday and Sunday with his daughter. Then on the following Monday, when his daughter was at school and his girlfriend was at work, the man went out to the shed. He pulled Samantha Koenig's frozen body out of the cabinet, unrolled it from the blood-soaked tarp, and proceeded to defrost the body with the two space eaters and a blow dryer. Oh, no. No, I just, I just get the feeling I know what he's going to do next. And I don't want to go there, because it's super fucked up. Oh, he did. Look, you know what happens. I don't need to say that. He... Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Let's just add necrophiliac to the list. And we're done. Then the man painted the body's face with thick globs of makeup to hide the pallid color that came from freezing and exsanguination. He braided the corpse's hair, tried to superglue the eyelids open, but failed. Instead, he sewed the eyelids open using a curved needle and fishing line. He placed a layer of duct tape over the mouth and around the back of the head to hold the now drooping, defrosted skin in place and to conceal the fact that the young woman was dead. The man held up a February 13th copy of the Anchorage Daily News and took a Polaroid of the girl who he hoped the authorities would believe was still alive. This effectively gave the man an alibi since he was out of town from February the 2nd to February the 17th. As a point of interest, the FBI have never released the photograph, good, and the one which circulated around the internet is a mock-up from a true crime show that aired in the United States. I mentioned this in case the more morbid of you decide you want to look it up. If you're one of the, if you're if you're watching this right now, and you uh, while well, listening to this, Google that image. <laughs> ah, check yourself. Or in case Jen decides to Google it and helpfully throw it up on screen, it's a fake, and lots of people apparently believe it's the real one. Not us, uncasual criminalist. That's why we rise above. <laughs> That's right. 
That's right, some self-praise for David. It's not really my praise. I just read David's great words. <laughs> Sorry. Use, I mean, I was praising the show, not myself. Using an old typewriter, the man wrote a ransom note. He demanded $30,000 to be deposited. Where you could, Where's a broke-ass family going to get $30,000, my dude? Be deposited into Samantha's bank account so he could withdraw the money. He mentioned that he may not use the debit card much in Alaska due to the fact that the state had a small population and thus a smaller pool of suspects, but wrote that he would be leaving soon and would use the card from multiple locations. As a form of misdirection, the killer mentioned that Samantha had tried to get away twice, once outside common grounds, and again, quote, in the desert. Dude, you're in Alaska, is the desert? I guess there's like winter deserts or snow deserts or whatever they're called. Like, I think Al Alaska, I think uh, Antarctica is technically a desert, isn't it? Because it's so dry. But, dude, weird man weird finally the killer wrote that once the thirty thousand dollars had been fully withdrawn between six months to a year later the man would text the coordinates of an information packet which would contain all the details required to find samantha's location dude if you're getting thirty thousand dollars over a year what's the point just go get a job that pays thirty thousand dollars i mean does that sound super like privileged and how easy it is to find jobs but is thirty thousand dollars that's not even a particularly well-paid job is it if we're honest is that right i don't know it's also america it's slightly different like in the uk i feel like that's you know below average i've got to look that up um, it's been a while since i know what this is what is average average american salary wow it's literally the first thing you look up when you search average american whoa okay my bad it's fifty-six thousand. oh wait no that is i was right so that's not a good salary why are you spending a year doing this? Just go get a job, you lazy bum. Thereafter, the man dismembered Samantha Koenig's body, cut it into five pieces. He then went to Matanuska Lake, which was frozen over at that time of year. He built an ice fishing hut, drilled a hole in the ice, and spent two days dropping the pieces of the corpse into the water, uncovered, wrapped with cord, and sent down to the bottom with lead fishing weights. Thereafter, the man would fish at the exact same spot and take the fish home to cook and feed to his family. On Friday, February the 24th at 7.45 p.m., the man sent a text message to Samantha's father, which read, Connor Park sign under pick of Albert, ain't she purdy? The pic of Albert referred to a lost dog poster for Albert the Golden Doodle located in an Anchorage park. Under the poster on the ground was a Ziploc bag containing the ransom note and a black and white copy of Samantha's fake proof-of-life photo. There was some disagreement among Anchorage police and FBI investigators about whether Samantha was alive in the photo. A blank stare and odd expression convinced a minority of investigators that they were looking at a corpse. An FBI snuff film analyst was called into the investigation, but they could not reach a conclusion based on the single black and white photograph follow the money police deposited the thirty thousand dollar ransom payment into samantha's bank accounts on february the 29th at nearly midnight five hundred dollars was withdrawn from an atm in anchorage police arrived on the scene shortly after the culprit left the area the atm camera showed grainy footage of a masked man then just after midnight on march the third another five hundred dollars was withdrawn from an anchorage atm the small withdrawal amounts were due to the daily limit placed on the debit card four days later on march the seventh four hundred dollars was withdrawn from an atm over three thousand five hundred miles to the south in wilcox arizona at 9 57 pm that is a mega journey 
A couple of hours later, near midnight, the man traveled to withdraw another $400 from an ATM in Lordsburg, New Mexico, but failed due to the daily limit, so wound up only taking out another $80. It was clear that the man was driving hundreds of miles to keep authorities off his scent. Two days later, on March the 9th, 2012, at 11.23 p.m., again, I just gotta wonder, you're driving hundreds of miles for 500 bucks. I mean, 500 bucks is a decent amount of cash, but you, you, did you drive 3,500 miles? Isn't that expensive? I feel like petrol's not cheap, plus all the miles on the car, plus like snacks, plus you're in a car for bloody ever. Two days later, on March the 9th, 2012, at 11.23 p.m., the man made a $483 withdrawal from a bank in Humble City, Texas. It's very specific. Can you choose? <laughs> Normally when you go to the ATM, it's like, how much do you want? I don't know, pounds, I guess dollars work about similar. It's like, I don't know, $20, $50, $100. Is 100 pounds still the most that you could get from a cash machine? I don't even know anymore. I pay with cards so much these days. This time in the camera footage from the ATM, police identified a white Ford Focus as the man's vehicle. Texas authorities were immediately alerted to be on the lookout for such a vehicle in connection with the kidnapping. Meanwhile, Samantha's killer attended his sister's wedding in Wells, Texas. A few days later, at 11 a.m. on March 13th, a highway patrolman spotted a white Ford Focus parked at a Quality Inn hotel in Lufkin, Texas. Police in Texas had already been alerted about a white Ford Focus in connection with a kidnapping in Anchorage, Alaska. I feel, when was this 2012? Ford Focus is a ridiculous, it's, I mean, it's ridiculously popular in Europe, and Ford is an American company. There must be Focuses everywhere. And I mean, white is hardly an unusual color. The highway patrolman observed the car from a distance, then noticed a tall man in his 30s get into the vehicle and depart. Either way, just be like, yo, 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 <laughs> let's go check that guy for a debit card. Can you just search someone? Probably not, right? You'd have to get that's going to be tricky. You can't arrest someone because they drive a white Ford Focus and are in their 30s. It almost describes me, except I drive a white Volvo. At 11.45 a.m., the patrolman pulled the car over for going two miles over the speed limit. The officer inspected the man's driver's license. It was issued in Anchorage, Alaska. Oh boy, it's adding up. It was at this point that the patrolman felt fairly confident that they'd found their man. FBI agent Ganaway set out with the Texas Ranger towards Lufkin, Texas, to observe the arrest and inspect the vehicle. In the rental car, police found a pair of women's pink panties, a gun, and also a ski mask and white tennis shoes worn by the suspect on the ATM footage. Mate, you are busted. If this turns out to be just a wild coincidence, I mean, come on. There was also a batch of transgender porn, rolls of cash stained by a dye pack, and Samantha Koenig's ATM card and mobile phone. Well, that's it. Busted. Why are the rolls of cash stained by a dime? Oh, because he robbed a bank. Of course he did. You're the most terrible criminal ever. How did how did you actually manage to commit these crimes? You're so incompetent. I'm kind of amazed. The man was arrested. Upon questioning, he claimed that he was in Texas to attend his sister's wedding and was driving to see the Grand Canyon. Mate, yeah, but what about the debit card? The women's panties? The dye pack stained cash? You're going to jail forever. Hopefully. Or maybe you're, you know, where is it? Texas? Anchorage? Alaska? I feel like these are places where they're definitely, you know, I feel like name American places that have the death penalty. Texas, absolutely number one place that enters my mind. Because it's, you know, yeehaw. And then Anchorage, Alaska, I just feel because there must be lots of criminals in Alaska, right? It's where they all go. I feel like it's just a trope. <laughs> like, where are you going to head up to Alaska after committing crimes? <laughs> they'll be, they'll be 
They'll be, you know, they'll be executing up there. He asserted that the suspicious items in his possession were thrown in his car by an unknown individual. Oh, really? <laughs> Along with the Anchorage, Alaska ID? Police in Alaska, meanwhile, paid a visit to the man's home in Anchorage where nobody answered the door. They matched a truck parked in the driveway to one captured on Home Depot camera footage pulling out of the same parking lot where Samantha Koenig had been abducted from common grounds on the evening of February the 1st. The truck was registered to a man named Israel Keys. Meet Israel Keys. Israel Keys was born on the 7th of January 1978 in the tiny Mormon community of Cove, Utah, to John and Heidi Keys, who, even by the standards of Mormonism, were quite eccentric religious zealots. David has underlined that I guess they were really zealoty. Uh, with some unusual and perhaps even heretical views. Israel was the second of ten children, all of whom were born at home and had no birth certificates. <laughs> what? I mean, even if you're born at home, isn't that something you have to get? At some point in your life, you're going to need some sh**, and someone's going to say, can I see your birth certificate? Like, to get a passport, or a driver's license, or something. Although I'm just thinking now, I, the, I only saw my birth certificate for the first time in my life when I got married. So maybe we don't actually need those. Also, I remember in the past, they used to be acceptable as forms of ID. <laughs> it's like, but there's no picture on there. It's just a certificate. And mine looks all old school. Israel and his siblings were homeschooled. They acquired literacy by memorizing the Bible. <laughs> well, sh**. Aside from theology, their education mainly consisted of practical skills involving hunting, carpentry, cooking, sewing, cleaning, along with advanced survival skills and wilderness skills. The emphasis was on God, family, and self-reliance. John and Heidi were transplants to Utah from Los Angeles, seeking a life away from the corruptions of civilization and the interference of the state. Essentially, John and Heidi were doing their best Dutch Vanderlind impression i mean if i think of we're talking about like places in america where you immediately think they're the death penalty it's like yeah texas baby i feel like the place if you'd asked name two more different places salt lake city los angeles they are i've been to both salt lake city is flat and i don't know it just feels like i don't know just mormony <laughs> and los angeles is like is it is no vegas is sin city los angeles is the city of angels now why do i know know this movies too many movies isn't there a movie called city of angels starring nick cage legends if you haven't seen that trailer for the unbearable weight of massive talent do yourself a favor turn off this video go check out that new trailer for that nick cage movie and then come back to this i'm very much looking forward to that actually don't do that carry on watching my video try and be a good youtuber or podcaster fact boy come on John and Heidi had a tense relationship with their community in Cove. On a few occasions, neighbors called the authorities to make welfare checks on what they perceived as strange goings-on at the Keyes' family home. In 1983, John and Heidi rejected Mormonism and moved north to the top of Aladdin Mountain, Colville District in Washington State. The entire Colville District had a population of roughly 4,000 people in a landscape covered with forest connected by a network of narrow dirt roads. Here, John and Heidi rented an isolated one-bedroom cabin which did not have electricity or running water, while John took several years building a cabin of their own. Firmly clasped in Mother Nature's embrace, the Keys family could do as they pleased. It should be noted that in the one-bedroom cabin, John and Heidi conceived several more pregnancies while sleeping in the same room as their existing children. <laughs> is, this, 
<laughs> that's uh i don't know how old are those children i i mean now <laughs> way too much insight into my personal life but there's a question like because you know when do you <laughs> this is way too personal <laughs> but it's like i live in an apartment it's like yo when do we have to be like when when do the kids become aware <laughs> stop it whistle carry on in order to make ends meet john keys <laughs> They're still in a different room. They're not in the <laughs> Just felt I had to clarify that. Um, too much information. Oh my god. In order to make ends meet, John Keys lets out his services and appliance repairmen. How, how are you an expert on appliances? You don't even have electricity in your house, John. You weirdo. All their neighbors Simon being like, Ah, oh, Simon, don't call people weird. You don't want electricity in their house. That's not weird. That's just alternative living. And I'm like, yeah, but it's weird, isn't it? <laughs> Subjectively weird. Because everyone else is like, you know what's great? Electricity. Sucks when the electric goes out. All their neighbors were of similar philosophical dispositions. They were devout Christians without traditional denominations. They homeschooled their kids. They preferred to live in nature far removed from the interference of the United States government. Stupid government. What's it ever done for me? Uh, <laughs> Whatever I hear that, it's like, I don't know, loads of sh like literally you're living in a country that is possible because of your government. I mean, I get it. Like I'm small government i guess like i get that but when it's like when you're like no government it's like bro do you have any idea how quickly things would go to with no government have you seen any disaster end of the world movie governments i mean government is bad and it does all this stupid and wars and wasting money and i get it but it's like no government no government <laughs> That's even an argument. The neighborhood would regularly meet for potluck dinners, theology meetings, and playdates between the children of the different families. Lack of proper medical care and dentistry in the community left Israel with slightly crooked teeth and deformed toes from wearing secondhand shoes that were several sizes too small. From the age of eight, Israel helped John uh, out John's business and with the construction of the family cabin. By age 12, Israel had become a seasoned hunter and supplemented his family's diet by shooting, skinning, preparing, and sometimes even cooking the animals he bagged. I mean, this, on the other hand, like nature, I love nature. Like, I live in the city, but I have a small, like, uh, country cottage in the middle of the forest. And it's got, like, electricity, obviously, because it's 2022. And it's got, it, it's, not, it's got running water, but it comes from a well and stuff. You know, there's a pump that brings it all up. And I love it. I like every, my wife likes, she's more of a city girl. But I'm like, every weekend, I'm just like, let's go, let's go, let's go to the country. And I just want to hike in the forest and like cook on the barbecue and just do because I, I grew up in the countryside and i love that but then after a few days i'm like can we go home and order chinese food <laughs> have every meal delivered to the house and uh i mean it's just easier isn't it oh just not just the food thing but life in general it's like oh no i forgot something in the country it's like a half an hour drive to the store <laughs> in the city it's like cool there's a shop literally downstairs and if I don't want to go downstairs, like the one minute walk across the street to the shop, I can order it and someone will bring me milk. <laughs> like a few dollars. Oh my God, we live a in a ridiculous world, don't we? Uh, he had become a proficient marksman, gunsmith, and developed a hobby of repairing, restoring, and tinkering with old firearms. Because the Keys were a family of ten, and evidently because both John and Heidi were pretty useless as both carers and providers, the Keys family came to rely heavily on Israel to provide, to repair things, to cook, to clean, and even to braid his sister's hair. Imagine being upstaged in parental duties by a tween. Yeah, it'd be fairly embarrassing. 
and it would give me a strong reminder that I should get my parenting shit together. In 1990, the Keys family began attending the Ark Church. The Ark was a cultural supremacist organization which preached Anglo-Saxon, Anglo-Saxon Christian superiority. Oh my god, until now, <laughs> I didn't even know that was a thing. And I'm depressed that that exists. Isn't that, I feel like that's just another, I feel like that's just, wait, Anglo-Saxon. Isn't that like, that's white people, basically. <laughs> So is this basically a white supremacist church, just with a name that doesn't say white supremacist in the title? For obvious reasons. Although I feel like if you're in the middle of nowhere and you're like, fuck the government, they got doing nothing for me, then you'll be like, you're, you're like, yeah, you'll be like, I'm a white supremacist. I love that shit. I feel like you're already, you've already fully embraced that, you know, <laughs> alternative lifestyle of white supremacy people that up uh, alternative lifestyles are okay it's like yeah but not when they're white supremacy is it that's not okay uh there is a slight difference here between the ark and a full-blown white supremacist organization thank you david uh, the latter of which would more likely preach that a genetic difference favors all nordic european whites of any cultural backgrounds what okay oh okay so it's just well that's just racism isn't it it's like no 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 it's not racism it us not racism we're just genetically superior it's like mate <laughs> well you're obviously not genetically superior in the intelligence department because that is racism <laughs> instead according to the ark's doctrines the anglo-saxon christian principles on which the united states were founded were betrayed by non-christians catholics communists non-english europeans including german scandinavians french and scots and of course all non-european immigrant cultures while the church itself entertained the idea that any person could be assimilated into anglo-saxon christian culture its community was largely composed of white predominantly those of english descent <laughs> it's like no we're not racist we'll accept anyone into our group it's just a coincidence that we're all super super white more bizarrely the church preached that the anglo-saxons were descended from the original israelites and that the ancient jew and that ancient jews were all converted to christianity by the year 600 a.d and any jewish people who exist in the world today were imposters damned by satan who had nefarious purposes and sought to undermine western civilization out of vengeance for past injustices oh look an anti-semitic conspiracy theory that's unusual that sarcasm ah. <laughs> so at least in regard to rampant anti-semitism the ark was indistinguishable from a typical u.s white supremacist christian organization while at the same time bizarrely preaching that english people were the original jewish people feel free to pause the video and take about two minutes to 20 years to figure out the logic of that one it is absolutely dumb oh what a surprise though what a surprise <laughs> the racists are stupid <laughs> shocking and bear in mind this wasn't some backwards hillbilly cult from the 19 from the 1820s this was 1990. uh the keys family doubled down on their community spirit and also attended the nearby christian israel convent church which had a similar biblical interpretation doctrines of beliefs and an orthodox historical perspective <laughs> an orthodox historical perspective uh, incorrect <laughs> there's another way of putting that it's worth noting that both of these churches still exist with some rebranding in washington state today at this second church 12 year old israel keys met 17 year old chevy kehoe and his younger brother shane i mean that is david again provided me a alter uh, a spelling guide a pronunciation guide for shane um, because it's not spelt the traditional way it's spelt c-h-e-y-n-e 
which is a bit weird, but okay. Six years later, Chevy became a full-blown white supremacist, supremacist, not Aryan nation Nazi. Surprise! <laughs> And he went on to murder a married couple and their eight-year-old daughter in 1996 during a home invasion and robbery, and in 1997 survived a vicious shootout in police with police before going on the run and eventually being captured. He was executed by lethal injection on the 14th of July 2020. And no tears were shed. But his brother Shane, except by his brother Shane, but no one cared, uh, was also involved in the 1997 shootout and got 24 years in prison. Good, which was reduced to 11 years. Eh, eh. Before being rearrested in 2013 for illegally stockpiling piling firearms. That damn government! They'll never take my guns! Except they did, and you went to prison, didn't you? Because you were illegally stockpiling firearms. Don't do it. Israel himself dipped in the extreme opposite direction as Chevy Kehoe. Israel rejected all of his family's religion and ideology completely by the mid-1990s, and instead of full-blown white supremacy, he gravitated towards a loose adherence to the principles of Satanism. Holy sh**. I mean, anything's better than the crazy white supremacists living in the forest, I guess, but Satanism? Uh, only the barest outlines of the belief system of his childhood, namely a violent disdain for the decadence of wider society and a hatred for modern America, remained. He's kind of sounding like a stupid version of the Unabomber. I mean, the Unabomber's just like... That... That thing, we should cover the Unabomber on this channel, but that the uh, industrial society and its decline or whatever, it's like... The Unabomber is a bad dude, but he's obviously very smart. By the age of 14, <laughs> don't be praising the Unabomber. By the age of 14, Israel would run with some of the local boys and his younger sisters and wreak havoc in the community. They'd set fires and torment wild animals. One of their favorite activities was to shoot BB guns at a house. If no outraged occupant came out, the kids would break inside and move around the furniture slightly to freak out the neighbors when they returned. I mean, <laughs> this is like. It's like just stupid kid behavior. Although I never broke in. We played with BB guns for sure. And uh, I don't know. I never broke into anyone's house though. <laughs> Other times during their break-ins, they'd steal valuables and more frequently guns. Holy shit, I definitely didn't do that. Uh, of which there was an unsurprising abundance in the area. It was during this time that Israel acquired a pistol, which he concealed and carried on his person at all times. By the age of 14, Israel had grown to a scrawny but substantial six feet tall. In that same year of 1992, when Israel was still 14, he expanded his targets to domestic pet. Uh-oh. <laughs> I mean, I feel like I knew this even before I started doing this podcast, but it's like, yo, 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 parents, caregivers, whoever, friends. <laughs> if one of your friends, slash enemies, slash anybody, is torturing and killing animals, keep an eye on them, all right? I mean, definitely. Do you tell the police? Yeah, I mean, that's like killing animals is a crime right i mean if it's someone's animal i guess you could just go kill a deer or whatever but if you're like torturing animals and shit just i mean that person's going to grow up to be a psychopath it's just i mean right it's like number of animals i tortured as a kid zero <laughs> who does that it's weird i mean i'm not saying that you're going to become a psychopath but i mean get some help okay he completely disgusted his friends by shooting cats and dogs. One time, Israel turned his sights to his sister's cat, which kept getting into the trash and making a mess. Israel, a group of local teens, and one of his other sisters took the cat into the woods. Israel tied the cat to a tree with a ten-foot-long parachute cord. He shot the cat in the stomach. In agony and panic, the cat ran circles around the tree, trying to get away, until the cord ran out of slack and the cat smashed its skull into the tree and started vomiting blood. Israel just laughed. Israel, you psycho. I mean, in a way, 
It's like, look, <laughs> if I was a person and a random cat or animal just started going through my trash and like cutting the bags open and doing all that, I'd be like, oh my God, I want to shoot that cat. I mean, I wouldn't actually do it, but I could understand why someone with, I don't know, less mental balance, <laughs> not that I'm like super mentally balanced or anything, uh, would want, would actually, you know, just like, just pop that cat off because it's really annoying. I mean, but then like you tie it to a tree and shoot it. That's basically torturing the animal. And that's, that's a bit much. And also just randomly killing cats and dogs is a bit much. I mean, <laughs> I don't want to say I understand why he killed a cat, but it's like, yeah, if a cat kept shit, I remember my parents getting absolutely batty because uh, our, our neighbors had a cat and it would, cats don't like in their own area so this cat would constantly just hop over the fence take a big old shit in my parents garden and then just go back and this happened all the time my parents were like that f***ing cat <laughs> they would have shot that cat i mean they wouldn't have but you get my point let's carry on but when he's turned around he noticed that all the other kids seemed traumatized <laughs> surprise one of the boys was bent over violently being violently sick on the ground one of the kids told his parents who confronted john and heidi keys who punished israel from that point forward, Israel ceased hanging out with any of the local teens or his sisters and conducted his sadistic activities in the woods on his own. It was at 14 that Israel realized that he was drastically different from all the other people he knew. At 16, Israel moved out to a nearby cabin that had built for himself for privacy. By this point, Israel displayed most of the symptoms of primary psychopathy. He lacked empathy, was incapable of genuine guilt, enacted cold and calculated cruelty, lied when it suited his advantage, and maintained a facade towards others in order to get what he wanted. Israel often opines that his mind was inhabited by two people the fake everyman and the cruel tormentor and during adolescence that crack cruelty graduated into sexual sadism yet in adulthood israel became a highly intelligent organized high-functioning psychopath who was able to mask his desires and cover up his deeds really <laughs> honestly from the first like 20 pages or it's not been 20 pages it's been a lot of pages uh i kind of thought he was a bit of a criminal like he put that body and just then went on a cruise <laughs> what are you up to that doesn't seem like the most intelligent move like if you've i i mean i don't want to say like dispose you know if you've got your to-do list and you're like okay things i've got to do before i go on vacation turn off the gas uh you know lock the door dispose of the body <laughs> it should be on your things to do before vacation and just i mean it should shouldn't it <laughs> really highly intelligent while occasionally a few people who met him might have feel might feel the instinctual alarm bell that the man was creepy until his arrest in 2012 most people had no idea what israel keys was really like or what he was capable of after the abduction of samantha koenig and right up to being identified as the driver of the white ford focus who had frequented the ransom atms keys was not even on the police radar it's interesting right like these people have such a good facade it's like i think of all the people i've met in my life you know hundreds of people maybe thousands of people and it's like no one in my mind is like that guy was a psycho <laughs> like there's no one in my life who i think i mean maybe if i really thought about it there could be but i've met psychopaths just because statistically isn't like one in a hundred people or something a psychopath so if you've met lots of them in your life and how many times you've been like that guy's definitely a psychopath definitely shut up ipads <laughs> i'll tie you to a tree and shoot you not really i'm not a psycho also it's just an ipad seems shh ah i just turned the volume off why why do you do this boys i said yeah 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 so you've met psychopaths and it's like how many people have you been like nah that guy's definitely a psychopath because they're really good at making these veils and stuff so they feel like real people i mean they're real people but inside it's like some patrick bateman 
Although I feel like if I met Patrick Bateman, obviously a fictional character, but you'd be like, <laughs> definitely a psycho. Keskus say. Keyes was fairly good at covering up evidence and disappearing bodies, and unlike some serial killers, he had no desire to brag about his kill count. They were all committed for his own private enjoyment. And while he privately sought some individual, anyone, but preferably a woman, to briefly share his particularly jaded view of the world with, he was not sure, he was not what would call a statement killer either. Keyes had very little interest in imposing his own ideology on the world or winning converts to his point of view. The man was a phantom psychopath, a poisonous wallflower who just quietly enjoyed killing and the disturbing thought is that there are possibly thousands of high-functioning psychopaths like him out there, quietly adding to the missing persons list and almost never getting caught. Yeah, that's kind of what I was saying, isn't it? It's like there's lots of people out there who would... I mean, I don't... I just feel, just doing casual criminals, I'm like, criminals are generally a bit shit, but these are all the ones we get caught. There's loads out there who are just getting away with crimes just all the time. Because, I mean, statistically, the vast majority of crime is not punished. And that's kind of scary, isn't it? I mean, I guess like more violent crimes, generally the percentages are higher. But it's like, isn't the statistics like one in a hundred or something? I can't remember. I remember this from studying and it was like, well, first of all, the person's got to be caught doing the crime. And then they've got to be reported to the police. And then the police have to decide to do something about it. And then they have to get enough evidence. And then they have to go to the CP, the, the, the uh, Crown Prosecution Service. I don't know what it is, like the district attorney, something like that in the States the state attorney something like that i don't know like the person who prosecutes the crime in court and they've got to decide whether there's enough to go on and whether it's worth doing it considering all the other crime that's going on and then you've got to go to court and then they've got to prove beyond all reasonable doubt that they're guilty and i'm like that's that's a lot to go through <laughs> to like punish someone open my trembling flower or your petals are crush in 1996, when Israel was 18, John and Heidi Keys rejected the doctrines of both the Ark and Israel Covenant churches, just like they'd done with Mormonism previously. They sold their Mount Aladdin cabin, which John and Israel had completed six years earlier, along with a smaller cabin that Israel had built for himself when he was 16. The Keys family moved to a small pseudo-Amish community that was also in the Colville district. I guess the flaky former Los Angelinos thought that they'd give it a whirl. Or perhaps it was because John Keyes had been running up a back log of bank loans to pay for his large family's already modest backwards lifestyle. I'm kind of surprised that they have that. I kind of imagine these dudes just like living without money. <laughs> they, they don't have ID. They don't have assets to secure things on. They have a, ha a, a cabin that they built by themselves. I didn't imagine, Im imagine them having electricity, let alone being able to go into a bank and be like, hello, I'd like you to loan me more money. Be like, dude, are you crazy? You live in the woods. You'll just disappear one day. And well, look what happens. <laughs> There's also some indication that John and Heidi gradually pissed off the rest of the people in the small communities that they moved into. I wonder why. Meanwhile, by this time, Israel had secretly abandoned Christianity altogether and was becoming increasingly enamored with the principles of Satanism. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. He was becoming a Satanist or some shit. Which is a mixture of occult practices, 20th century hedonism, and counterculture. Wait, how do you have 20... What is 20th century hedonism? Is that like just you have a good time like it was the 20th century <laughs> okay and counter is i mean i guess it exists because david's pretty smart and just because i've never heard of it doesn't mean it's not a thing <laughs> Uh, and counterculture, and in some cases, outright atheism, which mocks mainstream Christianity by choosing Satan as its avatar. I prefer the, uh, is it the pasta god? There's like the sp spaghettifarians or something, and they, they worship the great spaghetti monster just to mock religion. 
Uh, it's a bit, you know, it's a bit less on the nose than Satan, isn't it? There is no question that Israel Keys fell into uh, the branch of atheistic Satanism rather than the branch of witchy boos who tried to summon the devil. <laughs> Israel, yeah, that's the thing. Also, if you're like, I'm a Satanist because I don't believe in religion, it's like, oh, okay, because I thought you were a witch, which is different there, even like, arguably. I mean, it's a it's a bit more weird to believe in witch stuff than it is. Is it more weird to believe in witchy stuff than it is to believe in the stuff that was in the Bible? I mean, arguably not, I guess. It's all just a bit, I don't know, to me, to me, my opinion, it's all a bit silly. It's all, you know, that's not to say I'm, I, I, I don't, you know, not believe in the being stuff we don't understand. I absolutely do. I just don't believe it's written in a really old book <laughs> or a new book. That doesn't mean I'm a part of some weird cult. <laughs> Israel Keys at this time also became a big fan of heavy metal, gangster rap, and rap metal music, and in particular, Insane Clown Posse, from which he appeared to form his own somewhat incoherent set of philosophical ideas. By and large, Keys was more likely to derive what he felt was profound philosophical contemplation from listening to edgy song lyrics rather than reading books or stewing over arcane intellectual treatises. On March 3, 1996, 12-year-old girl Judy Harris, an amputee with two prosthetic feet who had previously partaken in the Special Olympics, went missing in Colville County. She was last seen heading to an early morning church service on her own. A month later, why is it really still called the Special Olympics? That doesn't feel very PC. Is it really? A month later, on April the 16th, Julie's purse and prosthetic feet were found near the Colville River. A year later, on April the 16th, 1997, Julie's skeleton was found in the woods by a group of children roughly six miles outside of town. It's another thing, like, I often read these and I'm like, I just think about back to my childhood how normal it was, like, number of skeletons I found as a child. Same as the number of cats I killed. Zero. After Israel Keys' arrest in 2012, several witnesses came forward to affirm that Julie and Israel knew each other and once at the local pool, Keyes was seen talking to Julie, whereupon she is said to have given Keyes her phone number and address. Julie's mother also, uh, Julie's mother remembers him hanging around the neighborhood. Nobody has ever been charged in connection with Julie's murder. At the end of 1996, having already outstayed their welcome in the pseudo-Amish community, the Keyes family moved to Dufer, Oregon, where they lived in a health food warehouse. They lived in a warehouse. Okie dokie. <laughs> I laugh at this, but a friend of mine lived in the gym. He was getting his house decorated and he didn't have anywhere to stay. So he lived in the gym. Like, was a, a friend of his ran the gym and they had a room and he stayed in this room at the gym. And I'm like, that doesn't sound like so much fun. <laughs> It wasn't. Providing unskilled labor for they were providing unskilled labor for the Seltzer family, but Israel Keys, now an adult, stayed behind in Colville to work on a construction crew. Besides, who the hell wants to live in a warehouse? <laughs> exactly. Israel was also not motivated, except for Canadian YouTubers, apparently. Like as, there's two huge too huge? Who's the other one? The guy who does unbox therapy. He just does his YouTube channel in a massive warehouse. Uh, that's pretty cool. Is Linus Tech Tips he's Canadian? Is he in a warehouse? I don't know if he's in a warehouse, but it's quite common. I don't know why. <laughs> it's like Canadian YouTubers love warehouses. Israel was also motivated to stay behind because he had gotten a girlfriend which did not particularly please his Christian parents who wanted to keep a tight rein on that kind of thing. If only they knew how deep the rabbit hole went. On June the 27th, 1997, 29-year-old single mother Marlene Emerson was murdered in a mobile home seven miles outside of Colville, and the mobile home itself was burned to the ground. The body of her 12-year-old daughter... Oh, my dude, what? It's always worse when it's children. It's just like... I, it's just, it, I guess it's like... Because I look at my kids and I'm like, oh, they're so pure. They've done nothing wrong. They've not ever been a piece of shit. 
And it's like, when you're an adult, it's like, yeah, I mean, look, <laughs> adults are broken and not brilliant. I mean, most most people, it's just like, you, you know, I don't know. Most people are good, though, aren't they? I feel like if I got murdered, I'd be sad. <laughs> Obviously, fact boy, thank you for that brilliant insight. But I feel like with kids, it's just you look at them and it's like they can't, they're just... There's just nothing wrong about them. They're just so sweet. You're like, oh, come on, no. Uh, Cassandra Emerson was found three miles away on July the 28th. Nobody was ever charged in connection with their murder. Meanwhile, Israel picked up sticks and joined his family in Oregon. His father, John, was seriously ill and could barely work anymore. The Keys family had moved out of the health food warehouse and were living in tents in the forest. I don't know whether that's an upgrade. At least you've got your own space, but you're also living in a tent. This is like one of like, when I was a kid, I dreamed of like that. It'd be great, like living in the forest in a tent. And I, I don't know, I just like Robinson Crusoe just was like, I love that idea. Like being on an island, you could build things with the trees. You get little monkey servants. Is that Rob Robinson Crusoe? Where? No, it's not Robinson Crusoe. There's like some 90s TV show. <laughs> Am I totally think It's like, uh, is it The Simpsons? Where they do the uh, the equivalent of Lord of the Flies. Uh, they like make fun of it. And then Bart's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Then the monkeys will be like serving us. It's not. What is that from? What's the original thing there? But that's what I imagined it would be like as a kid. And the reality is I'll be dead within three days because there'd be no fresh water. And uh, it would be horrible. But... I mean, like, I'm going to say that living in tents in the forests is an upgrade. There were They were renovating a local house in the woods, which they planned to sell in order to have the funds to move to yet another isolated location, this time in rural New York. One day in the summer of 1997, Israel was observing Swiss Family Robinson. The Swiss Family Robinson transformed this island jungle into an exciting tropical paradise. Is it the Swiss Family Robinson? I love that shit. Is that what I'm thinking of? Where they had this elaborate thing in the forest. I don't know if they had the animals like the monkeys and serving, bringing them teas and nuts. But was this? I don't know. It's like, I love that as a kid. Sorry, this has been a way too long. Let's carry on. One day in the summer of 1997, Israel Keys was observing swimmers in the Deschutes River. There, Keys abducted an unnamed teenage girl, dragged her to the outhouse of a local campground, tied her up by the neck and arms, and to the handrails, and her arms to the handrails of the toilet, and he raped her. According to later testimony by Keys, he was planning on murdering the girl and dumping the body into the cesspit, but he lost his nerve. For Keys, not murdering the girl was one of his deepest regrets. Psycho. Since it was the biggest loose end that he left open prior to letting his rental car be captured on camera by the Texas ATM in March 2012, the victim has never come forward. Oh my dude, go for come forward, like, please, <laughs> like go back in time and be like, look, just come. I know it's difficult, and I know, oh god, I don't want to comment on this anymore, but it's like, this guy had this terrible criminal career of murdering all these people, and maybe he wouldn't have. But I don't want to blame... I'm not blaming this person. Don't get me wrong. There is no blame on that person. That person is a 100% victim. But it's like... Okay, I don't know. Reporting crime seems quite important, to be honest. <laughs> that seems like a good thing to do, doesn't it? In early 1998, the Keys family sold their Oregon property, especially crimes like that. Especially crimes like that. The Keys family sold their Oregon property and moved to the tiny hamlet of Constable, New York, right next to the Canadian border, where they bought a cabin in the woods. Because John Keyes was heavily in debt by this time, he sold Israel the cabin for one dollar and tried to prevent the bank from foreclosing on it. Uh, don't think that's going to work, mate. <laughs> don't think that's how it works. <laughs> Be like, yeah, 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 I have massive debts on this house, so I'm selling it. Well, you can't sell it because the bank owns it, doesn't, don't, don't they? 
On March 2, 1998, 19-year-old college student Suzanne Lyle was last seen at 9.45 p.m. getting off a bus at the University of Albany Uptown Campus, New York State. Two men are suspected of her disappearance, one of whom is Israel Keyes and the other is John Regan, a rapist who was later arrested for kidnapping a high school girl in Saratoga in 2005. The case remains unsolved. For Keys and Country in June 1998, only half a year after moving to the cabin in Constable, New York, Israel Keyes, now aged 20, had falling out with his parents. He told them that he didn't believe in Christianity. He told them that he was joining the United States Army, and eventually he told them to get the hell off his property. Oh, because his dad sold him the house for like a dollar. <laughs> ah. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, the bank would probably be, get off the, the hell off my property anyway, soon enough. So, uh, that's pretty intense, though. Israel entered active duty on the 9th of July as part of a mortar platoon in the 1st Battalion, 5th Infantry Regiment in the United States 25th Infantry Division. Oh, my gosh. How deep does it go? The 1st Battalion of the 5th Infantry in the 25th Infantry Division. The United States military. <laughs> really large. We knew that fact, boy. John Keyes, Israel's father, would die in 2002, while Israel Keyes would eventually repair his relationship with some of his siblings. Their endless attempts to convert Israel to whatever Keyes' family religious flavor of the month they had going on was it was a constant source of tension between them, though. Over the course of Keyes' military career, he was posted at Fort Lewis in Washington State, Fort Hood in Texas, and on the Sinai Peninsula in Egypt. His commanding officers largely described Keyes as a good soldier, someone who followed orders and did not lose his head under pressure. Initially quiet and reserved upon joining up, Keyes quickly fell into the jarhead lifestyle. It was here that Keyes first developed his taste for alcohol. Starting with drinking large quantities of beer from the mess hall, eventually, you can drink when you're. They have beer in the mess hall? I guess, yeah, that does make a ton of sense. <laughs> of course they do. Like, I've seen those Vietnam movies where they have those big coolers of beer, and, uh,. Is it Generation Kill? That's a great show, that HBO uh, miniseries about the invasion of Iraq. That was that was a good one. And is that the one where they're drinking beer in the desert? Yeah, so I guess there's like lots of beer. But I feel like they'd be like, don't drink so much beer. <laughs> so that we can see how much beer you're drinking. It's not healthy. Uh, eventually growing to the sculling, sculling of an entire bottle of bourbon whiskey over the course of a weekend. God damn. Or over the course of one night. God damn, that's a lot of booze. It might be fair to say that in addition to being a functioning psychopath, Keyes Behemoth became a functional alcoholic. He also briefly dabbled in weed, LSD, and cocaine. In the year 2000, Israel Keyes was posted to Egypt before the Arab Spring, a U.S. pensioner puppet regime. I don't know what a pensioner puppet regime is. Oh, okay. Looks like we're going to get an explan explanation where essentially the USA paid the Egyptian government such a staggering amount of money each year that they fell into line with U.S. policy. Guess it's better than war. But it's like, oh no. It's like, America don't you spend enough on military already? Do you need to also be paying other countries in like, I guess they call it aid money or whatever? But it's Egypt. I'm sure there's lots of other countries that need aid more than Egypt. Keyes was part of a multinational border force that made sure no unauthorized armed groups passed illegally across Egypt's borders. Largely, this was to plug the leak of men-in-arms into the Gaza Strip and West Bank to avoid strengthening Palestinian partisan forces there. While on a few days' leave in the Israeli city of Tel Aviv, Keyes later recounted that he frightened both a Norwegian exchange student and an Israeli post prostitute with his sexual sadism and stopped himself short of murder because he knew the likelihood of being discovered by his squad mates or army authorities so he suppressed his urges until he was out of the army yeah those i don't know like 
they're definitely you're in a much smaller group there because it's like yeah it was one of the guys who was on leave he was in the marines they were like okay and also the military has its own police which i know all about because of those uh, jack reacher novels which i love love those books and uh with the main guy used to be like a military policeman and he's an extreme badass in the autumn of 2000 keys met a woman online named tamia single mother 10 years his senior who had an eight-year-old son she was a native american who had been part uh, who had part african ancestry and she lived on a reservation at nia bay in washington state i point this out to underline the fact that by this time keys had completely rejected the cultural and white supremacy of his former colville community well i think that's about the only good thing we can say about keys throughout this whole video he isn't a racist anymore too many amateur psychanalyses i've seen write off keys as an oklahoma style murderer but it's more complicated than that tammy and keys met for lunch in december of that year while keys was on leave and wound up getting drunk all night together a few months later tammy fell pregnant with israel's future daughter who was born in october 2001. israel eventually became so fond and protective of his daughter that he would henceforth avoid murdering people who also had young dependent children well what a hero that's really really good of you <laughs> Meanwhile, on the 8th of July 2001, Keyes was honorably discharged from the army, enjoying a relatively peaceful term of service. He got out just before 9-11 and the totally well-executed and definitely not botched 20-year occupation and democratization of Afghanistan. Ah! Not something we should laugh at, but uh, it is a good joke, David. Well done. I mean, the whole thing, a bit of a joke, isn't it? Good lord. The Poisonous Wallflower Israel Keyes moved in with Tammy on the reservation at Nia Bay. Keyes worked as an odd job repairman and later for the Parks and Recreation Department. His romantic relationship appears to have been stable for a handful of years, and Keyes was by this point well practiced at maintaining an outward facade of control and respectability. On June 24, 2006, Gilbert Gilman, age 47, was hiking in Olympic National Park, roughly 80 miles from the reservation at Nia Bay. That afternoon, Gilman failed to turn up for a meeting with a friend. His car was found a few days later in Olympic National Park near a ranger station. When asked about his activities at this time, Key simply shrugged and replied, Nia Bay's a boring town. Although Keyes' home life had so far been stable, Tammy was diagnosed with uterine cancer and was given a hysterectomy, then was put on heavy pain medication and thereafter fell heavily into depression and extreme alcoholism. In 2005, Keyes met another woman online named Kimberly, a traveling nurse, and the two began a secret affair. Then in 2007, Keyes left Tammy for Kimberly, and due to Tammy's alcoholism, Keyes gained custody of their daughter. Keyes, Kimberly, and his daughter then moved to Anchorage, Alaska, where Keyes started up a construction business. Israel Keyes quickly gained a reputation in Anchorage for being a quiet, reliable chap, a decent contractor, and a fellow who kept his nose clean. People even gave him the keys to their homes so he could effect repairs on them when they were out of town. This included a lawyer at the district attorney's office in Anchorage. Owning his own business allowed Keyes to make his own schedule, and he took full advantage of this by frequently traveling across the rest of the United States. So now, ah, this is how, because we're, we're at the beginning, like many, many, many pages ago, I was like, wait, how does this dude just have all this freedom? He owns his own business. But it's like, I run my own business. And it's like, I have to go to work all the time. I just can't go on a 12-day cruise without my family. It's like, what is your life? On April the 9th, 2009, Deborah Feldman, a 49-year-old homeless drug-addicted sex worker, disappeared from Hackensack, New Jersey. Based on incriminating statements Keyes made during his interrogation, the FBI are almost certain he murdered Feldman, a body 
was never found. On April 10, 2009, the next day, Israel Keys robbed a bank in Tupper Lake, New York, while brandishing a handgun and disguising himself with sunglasses and a fake goatee and mustache, and later he later admitted to this robbery while under interrogation. This makes me wonder about the whole kidnapping thing. How much money do you get from robbing a bank? I feel like these days, like a lot of banks just are cashless now, which is like so many banks, they're just like, we hold no cash on premises. And it's like, you're a bank. It's literally what you used to do. And now it's just like moving around ones and zeros. Um, but like, I feel like a bank robbery is going to yield you more than 30 grand, right? And he kidnapped that girl and spent like a year going around like using her ATM card, which must be super risky every single time to collect $500 a pop. Which, and that kidnapping and murder is a much worse crime than armed robbery, in my opinion. No, it is. <laughs> Kidnap, rape, murder. It's a much worse crime than armed robbery. <laughs> armed robbery is a bad crime. Don't get me wrong. Don't do that. But it's not as bad. So if it's about money, why not just rob banks and kidnap a murder rather than blackmail, you know, uh, the kidnap for money? Ransom is the word I'm looking for. Why even bother with the ransom? It seems just so pointless. On June the 3rd, 2011, 21-year-old college student Lauren Spira was last caught on street cameras leaving a sports bar in Bloomington, Indiana. She was heavily intoxicated and was walking home alone, having forgotten her mobile phone and her purse in the bar. The day before, Israel Keys had flown from Anchorage to Chicago, Illinois, rented a car by paying cash, turned off his mobile phone, and had driven 230 miles to Bloomington, Indiana. The day after Lauren Biera's disappearance, Keyes began an arduous 900-mile drive from Indiana to Vermont. What happened next, Keyes admitted to in full under interrogation. Keyes went to a sharp bend in the nearby Winooski River in Vermont, where he unearthed a cardboard box which he had buried there two years previously. Keyes removed an orange Home Depot bucket from the box, which was one of what Keyes called his killer caches, or what the authorities and press would later term kill kits. The orange bucket contained 22 caliber AR-15 bullets, a black plastic silencer, a Ruger 22 charger rimfire pistol with true glow scope, a Ruger 1022 semi-automatic rifle, multiple gun stocks and slings, a bipod for gun mounting, a bag of damp prid moisture absorber to prevent the spread of odors, four empty gun magazines, a lar large quantities of drain cleaner, duct tape, ro rope, zip ties, and a shovel. Oh my god. Like, we're just defining premeditated here, aren't we? On the evening of June the 8th, 2011, five days after the disappearance of Lauren Spira in East in Essex, Vermont, Israel Keyes tried and failed to abduct a man who was leaving his car and going to an apartment complex. According to Keyes, the guy was simply too fast getting out of his car and running into the building to get out of the rain. If the oblivious man had been a little slower, Keyes had already worked out a meticulous way of raping him, killing him, and disposing of the body. Instead, Keyes returned to his hotel where he stayed until midnight before heading out again. That is like, my, my dude. Thank you, Rain. Do you ever wonder like how close you've been to like death? I often wonder about this. I'd love to be able to look through my past, like have some sort of magical machine and tell me when is the clock. Because it's probably not what you think. It's like, oh yeah, that time you, uh, that, that light turned red, the crossing the road lights, and that caused you to be a minute late to cross the other road. And if you'd have made it, you'd have got run down by a car. I'd love to know what the closest... It's just fascinating. And this guy's would be like, well, you always got killed by Israel Keys, didn't you? Be like, holy s***. <laughs> it's pretty intense. Never let a good plan go to waste. Uh-oh. Is that guy still going to get murdered? Oh, damn it. 
On 12 p- at 12 p.m., Keyes left his hotel and walked a few minutes down the street to a residential neighborhood. He scoped out a white residential house that he chose at random. Keyes proceeded to cut the telephone and electricity lines to the house. Donning a headlamp, he broke into the garage and grabbed a crowbar from the wall, which he used to break the glass on the door leading into the house. Keyes then made a beeline for the master bedroom, where he woke Bill and Lorraine Courier, a couple in their 50s, and held them at gunpoint. Keyes confiscated a small revolver from Lorraine's nightstand, some jewelry, their ATM cards, some medication, some intimate clothing, packing it all into Courier's own suitcases. During the encounter, Lorraine tried to physically resist being bound with zip ties, so Keyes grabbed her by the throat and threw her down on the bed, saying, If you do that again, I'm not going to be happy. Keyes bound the courier's hands, told them to put on their slippers, and escorted them to the garage, where Keyes loaded them into passenger seats of the courier's green sedan, taking care to buckle up their seatbelts. Keyes then proceeded to drive the courier's to a second location. While in the car, Bill tried to reason with Keyes. During his later interrogation, Keyes said, I just kind of laughed at him. I don't know if I actually said anything, but in my head I was like, you don't even know how much planning I've put into this to just walk away. The planning refers to planting the kill kit in Vermont, the selection of the second location he was driving them to, and the method with which he was planning to dispose of their bodies. He is not referring to planning the couriers to be his specific victims, which was a spontaneous choice. It could just have easily have been the dude running into his apartment building or anyone else in Essex, Vermont, that night. Keyes drove the couriers to an abandoned farmhouse at 32 Upper Main Street at Essex Junction. Keyes took Bill out of the car first and forced him into the basement and tied his arms and legs to a heavy stool, with Bill lying flat on his stomach on the floor. When Keyes returned to the car, he found Lorraine was standing outside, whereupon she made a run for it, and Keyes chased her down and tackled her. Keyes then dragged Lorraine into the farmhouse up the stairs and bound her arms and legs to an old bed with duct tape. He then tied a rope around her neck and wrapped the whole thing around the moldy mattress from bottom to top, fastening it with a compound knot. At this point, Keyes heard Bill struggling and shouting in the basement. Instinct had taken over. Upon re-entering the basement, Keyes found that Bill had broken the stool into pieces and was in the process of freeing himself from his bindings. Keyes held a knife to Bill's throat, intending on raping him. Bill's put, Bill pushed Keyes, who staggered backwards. A scuffle ensued, where Keyes hit Bill multiple times with a shovel, knocking him unconscious. Keyes then returned upstairs to retrieve a 22 caliber handgun with silencer. He returned to the basement to see Bill on his feet again. Keyes shot him multiple times in the arms, chest, neck, and head, and then proceeded to go outside, where he smoked a cigar. Super up. Afterwards, Keyes went upstairs and sexually assaulted Lorraine. Like Samantha, it was quick and it happened twice. The second time, Keyes choked her to a state of unconsciousness. After she'd come to, Keyes removed her bindings and forced her down into the basement, where she showed Lorraine the body of her husband. Keyes then proceeded to throttle Lorraine to death. To be sure she was dead, Keyes took a zip tie and tightened it as tight as it would go around her neck. Keyes moved the bodies of Bill and Lorraine Courier to a corner of the basement, whereupon he poured two gallons of drain cleaner on them to speed up decomposition. He then covered their bodies with multiple standard-sized garbage bags. To further conceal the bodies, he threw old junk and wood panels on top of them. Originally, Keyes had planned to burn the entire farmhouse to the ground to conceal the evidence, but morning was fast approaching and Keyes could already hear sounds of traffic on the road. Instead, Keyes reasoned that since the abandoned farmhouse was in such poor shape that anyone who bought the land would simply demolish it. He gambled that the new owner would not commit a full inspection of the, inter- to an in- a full inspection of the interior before demolition, much less go down into the basement where it smelt like an animal had died just to kick some trash bags in the corner. He gambled correctly. The house was demolished four months later in October 2011 without an interior inspection. Concrete was poured over where the basement once was to transform the site back into a field. That's like, why would you take that risk? It's all this planning, all of this meticulous planning and stuff, and then it's like just taking a massive risk like that. It's just, 
very strange and like sort of sloppy but also he's not sloppy because he has all these weird kill kits and stuff i just don't understand i don't understand how his brain works probably because it doesn't work normal once keys confessed these murders investigators drilled into the concrete but they were not able to locate the bodies they tracked down the dump where the wreckage of the house was taken to there they fought there followed a three-month operation costing millions of dollars to evacuate excavate the dump but investigators still never found the bodies when keys was told about this he simply thought it was funny keys left vermont the day after the murders drove back to chicago where he dropped off a rental car flew to san francisco where he stayed the night and then returned to anchorage he later disposed of the courier's possessions and disposed of his kill kit by burying it at the blake falls reservoir in new york state only two such kill kits have ever been found but according to keys he had placed several of them strategically throughout the country death sweet death it's unusual i mean i maybe he's gonna kill himself or something or he's gonna get killed by the police because there's only two pages left today and i don't feel that's enough space to fit in a trial and all of the stuff that goes along with that and also this last chapter is called death sweet death so that also kind of gives it away a little bit anyway let's jump in after his arrest in texas for the kidnapping of samantha koenig israel keys was shipped back to anchorage for the next nine months keys would be continually interrogated by the da anchorage pd and the fbi he voluntarily submitted to 24 such interviews this was not to show off nor was it out of the goodness of his own heart keys made several demands in exchange coffee candy cigars but also the police keeping his name out of the press so it wouldn't upset his daughter and securing him an execution date so he wouldn't spend too long locked in a cell keys had not expected to get caught so soon and when he did keys said he fancied it would be a fiery shootout with the police where he was either killed or where he was either killed or killed himself Key said, I can't be satisfied sitting in prison my entire life. I'd rather go out while I still have my sanity and some good memories before chuckling to himself. Israel Keys confirmed that he murdered Samantha Koenig to the devastation of her father. He gave them all the details, and it took authorities 10 hours to retrieve her remains from the bottom of the frozen Alaskan lake. In his attempts to negotiate a swift execution, Keyes also admitted to the murders of Bill and Lorraine Courier and gave explicit details. Beyond that, Keyes admitted much more vaguely to four murders in Washington state, one murder in New York state, a rape in Oregon, multiple bank robberies, house robberies, and arsons. But not getting what he wanted, a quick end to the process, he became cagey about the details and ceased to supply names. When confronted with the pictures of suspected victims, Keyes would sometimes become physically aroused but either say he had heard the name but didn't remember the story or simply say that he didn't want to talk about that person yet keys became increasingly perturbed that he wasn't getting what he wanted on may the 23rd 2012 during a court hearing keys broke loose of his leg irons and jumped over the railing into the gallery the guard punched keys in the face but it did not stop him from running much less knock him over it took several guards tackling him and hitting him with a taser to bring him down more months passed and keys turned many of his conversations towards his childhood psychology idols like ted bundy and personal life the district attorney at one point told him that the more bodies we find the more likely it is that you'll get that execution but keys was not won over by that argument for some reason keys thought that the police were in a position to actually supply him with an execution date when in fact that was the responsibility of a judge after significant due process yeah i mean i don't think you get to choose how quickly you get executed i guess you can i get the feeling appeals are mandatory if it's a if it's an execution right you don't get to choose whether you appeal or not i don't know why i feel like i know that but i feel like that's a thing in the us i mean because yeah okay 
In the early hours of December the 2nd, 2012, Key slit his wrist with a razor blade, which authorities to this day still don't know how he obtained. He also tied his blanket around his neck and attached it and attached it to one of his legs so that as he passed out from insanguination, his leg would be lower to the floor and strangle him. A guard found him around 5 or 6 a.m. Blood had already seeped out from his cell. Under his body was a crumpled, blood-soaked suicide note, which had become so saturated that special technology was required to figure out what it said. Some pieces of it still remain illegible. The press was generally filled with frustration that the suicide note made no attempt to provide further information about his crimes, but Keyes never had any intention about helping anyone or revealing his crimes to the world unless he got something out of it. He wasn't a show-off. He wasn't a statement killer. He was a phantom who simply enjoyed quietly and meticulously killing. Other media reports, scholars, and sometimes the police themselves have referred to Keyes' suicide note as rambling poetry. That's simply not the case. They are song lyrics, his preferred form of self-expression and philosophizing. Just like he enjoyed listening to the lyrics of Insane Clown Posse and thought the chaotic, dark, and sometimes violent imagery their lyrics evoked were sublime, it is in the suicide note that we get a glimpse into the worldview that possessed Keyes' soul, though not, alas, any idea as to the extent of his victims. The lyrics boil down into four main themes. First, he uses a couple of metaphors about his capture and imminent death. Second, he rants on a bit about how there isn't a god and how humans are just bags of meat. Third, he denounces the pointlessness of American consumer culture and how they are all avoiding confronting the biggest problem of all, namely how we are all going to die and how meaningless life is. It would appear that from his deconversion in his teen years, as an atheist, Israel never really could come to terms with his own mortality. Fourth, he tries to instill his feelings into a naive, unnamed victim before it just turns into a rash of violent imagery symbolizing a murder. I've mulled over the lyrics in the video, but they are too long and I don't want to force Simon to read out all of that out of trash. One can easily find them online if the audience is curious. Good luck reading and interpreting. Yeah, I don't feel we need to, like, <laughs> give him any platform for his stupid ideas, stupid murderer ways. He sounds like a shitty Unabomber. I mean, the Unabomber's a bad dude. Like, he blew up and killed plenty of people. Uh, but, you know... I feel like his manifesto, it was like, okay, he's got a point. <laughs> Whereas his Rockies just likes insane clown posse and violence like a psycho. Hidden under Keyes' mattress, investigators later found 12 drawings done in the artist's own blood, 11 skulls believed to represent Keyes' victims, oh my god, the most likely of which were mentioned here in this episode. The 12th drawing is a pentagram with a goat's head believed to represent Keyes himself, his final victim. On one of the skulls is written the words, we are one. Dismembered Appendices Number 1. According to the skull drawing theory, Keyes murdered 11 people, of which only three are confirmed. However, after Keyes' arrest, a deluge of reports fuddled into the police where witnesses were able to identify Keyes stalking, their, uh, stalking for victims. In one case, he approached a fisherman, asked him about anyone knowing he was there, and only lost interest when he realized the man had a son. In another, Keyes tried to abduct a woman when a car broke down. She was saved, she was saved by a passing motorist. In all, there are roughly 40 credible reports where witness testimony seems to accord with the timing of Keyes' movements around the USA. It's possible, even likely, that Keyes stalked regularly for years and murdered more than 11 people. Number 2. Additionally, Keyes frequently moved around Canada and also had an obsession with Belize, so investigators have concluded there are probably other victims in other countries as well. <laughs> Belize? Okay. It's like, yeah, 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 no, I love the Anchorage, Alaska, Canada, and Belize. That's in, like, Central America, right? South America? North South America? Belize. The most thing I know about Belize, isn't that where John McAfee 
Had all of it, like, he had some troubles down in Belize. Wasn't he accused of murder or some shit? <laughs> John McAfee. He had a crazy life. Number three. While Keyes seems to have ki- uh, ceased killing people near his places of residence after he was discharged from the military, it's still a puzzle why Keyes would target Samantha Koenig, who lived in his town. Some witness accounts say that Samantha wasn't random, but was actually known to Keyes. What is more puzzling is why Keyes should endanger himself by insisting on going through with a random plot. It was high risk for $30,000. Exactly what I'm saying. It's way high risk. Just rob those banks. The FBI feel there is every indication that after roughly 16 years of successful murders, Keyes simply got arrogant and thought he could avoid detection. And if he had kept his car off that one ATM camera, he probably would have. And the phantom psychopath might still be quietly killing to this day. And the scary thing is, there are phantom psychopaths out there who didn't get caught by ATM cameras and are absolutely still out there killing today. I don't know where you are. Maybe you're just walking the streets alone right now. <laughs> In which case, I'm really sorry. You'll probably be fine statistically. Don't worry about it. Just, uh, you know, have a quick glance over your shoulder right now just to be sure. This has been an episode of The Casual Criminalist. Thank you so much for watching or listening. However, you consume this show. If you're watching and you want to listen as a podcast, yes, yes, it's on podcasts. And if you're listening as a podcast, you're like, ooh, maybe I'd like to watch this. Of course, it's on YouTube. Just search Casual Criminalist. If you are listening, please do consider leaving a review. Spotify now has ratings. Yes, please. Five stars preferred. Thank you so much. And I will see you in the next episode.